This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Today, uh, my guest is Serge Pringle. He is a therapist and life coach uh, in private practice, and he is the co-founder of the Integrative Focusing Therapy online training program. Uh, He has been exploring creative approaches to mindfulness, and he is the author of a book that we'll be talking talking about today called The Proactive 12 Steps, a Mindful Program for Lasting Change. And I will tell you that um, I had Serge on the podcast back in 2017. It was episode 73, and I read the book at that time and thought it was really if not the best, probably the best, honestly, of of the 12 steps that I've seen written in a secular way. And this is this version is even better in edition six. And I think what I like about it, Serge, is that um, I don't know if you were actually intending, well, first of all, you weren't necessarily intending these specifically just for people suffering from addiction or recovering from addiction, but for any pipe, anyone that seeks change in their life. But also, I think that you were looking at a secular um, view of these, not necessarily because we wanted to avoid God altogether, but to really get to the essence of what's involved. Is, is that right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, there's a phrase that you mentioned when we were talking uh, way back when in 2017. And you shared with me that once you stopped believing in God, uh, it actually cleared the way for you to understand the process. And uh, I took that phrase to heart because it really corresponds to my sense of what it is. Uh, Once you have the concept of God, essentially you stop because you have a good reason to say, oh, it works because of God. And you don't try to understand what it is that makes it work. So if you remove the magical, mystical intervention of God, then you can be much more curious about what it is that helps you change. And as you understand it, then you're able to go much farther than if you just think about it as some kind of a miracle. Yeah, that's been my experience. And uh, some of the steps that when you in the original writing that are really totally focused on God, when you really put that stuff out, and you think about the the actual the things that you do, um, it makes it that much more meaningful. I'm thinking in particular about steps six and seven, which maybe we can talk about a little bit later. But I, I wonder if you could share with us, though, what inspired you to do this in the beginning? You know, why the 12 steps? So um, I, my, my whole approach is therapy, and which is change that is assisted by somebody who has experience and guides you. From the beginning, I was struck by how amazing the process of the 12 steps is, that you have people helping each other and uh, some kind of a collective wisdom that helps people go beyond the limitations of an individual human being. Uh, And so I was really struck by that. And I've had over the past 30 years, a dialogue with the 12 steps, which has led to changes depending on different times. Uh, My understanding of what I do in therapy, my understanding of what happens to uh, clients, what happens to myself. Uh, So I think that I've, I've taken it as a thread And constantly have this dialogue to say, okay, so this is what they say. How does this correspond to my experience? 
And how can we find the spirit of what it is that's made it so useful, but at the same time feed it with the benefit of another approach, which is to say, how do things work in a secular way, in a, in a, in a scientific way, neuroscience and therapy, and how to cross the two so that you can have all the effectiveness of a program of self-initiated change, of peer-led uh, change, with all the benefits of what you know, people know now about how changes happens. Right. And you um, wrote this not not specific not for people necessarily that are um, dealing with addiction, but really for anybody who wants to affect change in their life. Is that right? Yes, yes. And so it came about with that realization that the twelve steps uh, really don't talk about how to stop drinking. Isn't that the truth? To- That's so interesting. A lot of people that ha- are not familiar with twelve step programs, they would be surprised how little is actually actually talked about our actual use of the substance in meetings, you know, unless you're at maybe the meeting where you're, you're kind of talking about that part of it. But for the most part, you're talking about the principles involved with your recovery and so forth. But, you know, one thing that came to my mind as I was just, as I was just blabbing there is I remember very well, but correct me if I'm wrong, the original first step you wrote, it was that um, I am stuck you have a behavior and I'm stuck and you did change that in, in, in subsequent versions. Um, Can you remember what that first, what that first one was? Yeah. Yeah. Essentially um, uh, I'm stuck between who I want to be and what I do. And so that phrase, what, you know, there's a big gap between who I want to be and what I do and I'm stuck in what I do. Right. And now it is, in reality, I am not able to control what I do. And this has serious consequences. So there's a bit of a difference there. But what, can you kind of go, walk us through the change yeah. and why you, what, yeah. what your thinking was? Yeah. So the, the stuckness obviously corresponds. You know, both are different ways of expressing uh, the same reality. Uh, and the what I liked about the stuckness was that there is a sense of uh, two personalities, two parts of myself or of yourself. Anybody is that that part that I want to be who I want to be. I want to I want to be all that I can be. And on the other hand, the sad reality of well, here's what I do, and and being trapped, you know, and not being able to go there. So I, I still like that very much. However. Um, what I wanted to do there is to say, you know, the essence of the 12 steps in lots of ways is about control. Um, and the way the traditional original 12 steps do it is, oh, control is a bad thing. If you're trying to control, uh, then you're, you're, you're wrong. You, you misunderstand the whole thing. The whole concept of uh, uh, healing is for you to stop controlling and trust God. And so I wanted to kind of go from the first step, go head front into the notion of control and to say control is not a bad word. If you drive a car, you know, you don't want to close your eyes and trust God. If you drive a car, you want to control it. Uh, if you're in a plane, you don't want the pilot to trust God. You want the <laughs> right. pilot to, you know, to know what they're doing. Exactly. If you have surgery... You know, you don't want the surgeon to trust God and do it. You want him to know <laughs> right. what he's doing. Yes. 
you know? And so uh, I want to make, so from the very beginning, I want to get that notion of control is not a negative word. It's really figuring out to have the difference between what you can control and what you cannot control. And then you go into, um, so for like, uh, uh, in the traditional way we think about this is that, you know, I have a problem, you recognize that you have a problem, and then you come to believe that there is some help for you. So with you, your second step is, I understand that I cannot force change through willpower. And you were just talking a little bit about, you know, control being a positive, but you notice that you can't necessarily do it through willpower entirely. I need to disentangle my life patiently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, it's not all or nothing. Again, the, the, the original 12 steps go into that all or nothing. Oh, control is really bad. So completely let go of control, okay? And the all or nothing approach really does not work because of the complexities of the situation. It's really a sense of give up control where it doesn't work. And the uh, dogged determination to say, you know what, it hasn't worked for me, but I'm going to keep trying to do something It doesn't work. Yeah, of course, you know, let go of that. But on the other hand, uh, you know, how is it that the process manages to work for you? And what's interesting is the 12 steps outline a process that is not, you know, I want to pray every day uh, so that prayer is going to make things happen. But the 12 steps gives very specific instructions of how it happens. That's true. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that notion is, okay, let go of willpower. But what you do is learn to find ways to disentangle your life. Right. Yeah. uh, The language is more clear. And I, I agree with you on what actually happens in the steps is, you know, it, the language might say in the original versions that, you know, you're going to rely on a higher power to do a lot of this, but that's, but they also talk about the actual physical things that we do, you know, how we write things down, we talk to somebody, we help people, we, you know, we try to set our relationships straight. There's a lot of concrete action that we take. And that is something that we ourselves are doing. It's no, no outside entity is doing it for us, you know? So, yeah. Um, I forgot to ask you, and I was kind of curious because, and I, and I, I know, I think I probably asked you about this and uh, when I first uh, met you, but why do you, why do you refer to them as proactive? Well, uh, for the same reason you mentioned now about uh, God, you know, in, in the original steps, you essentially let go and let God. Uh, and here you actually take a proactive role. Gotcha. Okay. I see. So yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So you're, yeah. Okay. You're not waiting. You're not waiting for something to help you. You're going to get and do the work and help yourself with, with probably a therapist, a coach and, and peers. And peers. Uh, but essentially uh, the approach is that uh, you are taking your destiny in your hands. Right. You know, and with help, a lot of this is about humility. You know, this is not about hubris. This is not about, uh, you know, arrogance. Exactly. Exactly. You yeah. don't throw the baby with the bathwater. 
Yeah, I think that um, I, I've had this conversation, especially with women who were um, first introduced to the 12 steps through the original um, big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, written in the 30s and written really from the perspective of men who were really dwelling on their egos and the need to have those egos deflated. And uh, these women telling me that they could not relate to that. But I'm, I'm coming back to them telling you, you know, a lot of men don't relate to that either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, if, you, if actually your whole experience of life is you're undervalued uh, and you try to make yourself meeker, you know, it goes against the idea of how you're going to confront what it is that traumatizes you. And uh, you, you mentioned before, you said uh, that these steps, as I thought of them originally, were not just for people who are in recovery. I think my, my sense of it is all of us in life uh, are facing oppression in some form or another. Uh, I, and, I, and so uh, it is really very burdensome to live in society, to live in a civilized world. It has a lot of burdens. And uh, essentially, how do we face that? So I think of uh, addiction as one of the ways in which this kind of heaviness, this kind of oppression, this kind of uh, difficulty overload affects people. But the spectrum of how we are affected is much wider. Isn't that interesting? It's, I was talking to someone else the other day who said that, you know, basically we're all in recovery from life. You know, we, we are. And I also had a conversation about the role that trauma plays in addiction, but trauma plays a role in everybody's life, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you know, the thing that's interesting about trauma is uh, when people started talking about trauma in therapy, it was about the really big thing, you know, the time where people came back from Vietnam, PTSD, you know, those kinds of things. And then there's a whole concept of trauma is this really very special thing that's, uh, you know, an extreme of, uh, of experience. But two things that people notice. One is people, two people can be exposed to the same circumstances and one will be traumatized and the other will not. Uh, And uh, essentially the notion of trauma as it has emerged is that trauma is essentially what it is that puts you on overload, that you don't have the capacity to manage at the time that it happens. Yeah. And it, and you're right. Um, I think that I initially had that conception that trauma was uh, like, you know, being physically, sexually abused, um, severe neglect, um, something along those lines, but it's not really. And, and also I, I, I've been learning, it's also interesting how trauma can be passed down generationally. And there's just so many, so many aspects to trauma, just, just the way our society is set up. Um, uh, uh, racism is traumatic. Um, there's just all kinds of trauma. So it makes sense to me that, you know, to think of it, yes, it, I can see that people will deal with trauma through addiction, but there's also a lot of other ways probably that trauma is impacting people, even if they don't become addicts. Yeah, yeah. So when you have addiction, you know, then it's a coping mechanism and it takes a life of its own because of the uh, dependency effects. But essentially, it is a way that people deal with what is unmanageable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so now we go into 
the first three steps are always kind of my favorite steps. I think the last time I had you on there, I think those are the only ones we looked at, uh, but I might want to talk about some of these others. But um, in step three, you, you, you write moment by moment, I take mindful pause to deal with my life calmly and effectively. So this, I guess, is where you're kind of getting into the whole concept of mindfulness and how that is useful for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and essentially it's describing the DNA of the process that a change is not something that happens at some unspecified point in the future. Change is not, you know, that you are a certain way. Say for argument's sake, you're drinking and uh, at some point you're not, but change is moment by moment. Uh, the difficulty of change is to happen in the moment. And so that is, uh, say, somebody would say, I won't drink. And in the moment where the, the, the triggers are so big, then this person cannot resist, okay? What happens in the moment? It's not just a big intention. And so uh, what is it that triggers people, you know, whether it's alcohol or any, anything else? The trigger is when something is essentially echoing a tr- the, what is traumatic. And um, at that moment, you essentially lose control of your power to act mindfully. Um, at that moment, you know, your organism goes into survival mode. And at that moment, say that taking that glass or the, whatever it is that you're doing as a coping mechanism becomes, is perceived by your organism as a life or death situation. And there's no logic whatsoever that's going to be strong enough to argue about life or death. Just the same thing as if somebody puts a gun to your head and says, you know, think beautiful thoughts or, you know, the, the, the reality is this gun is about to come off and you're going to be die- dead. And that's where you're totally focused on. So what we are doing, what is the DNA of the process of change is to learn to be in that situation of pressure and progressively be able to realize that there is less pressure than it feels like and find ways to cope with that pressure so that you don't need the coping mechanism. That's interesting. And it is a, it is a different way of looking at that. I, I think that, you know, when I, when I look back at my original experience with with this whole idea of change, I was thinking as you were describing it initially, that there's going to be a new me at some time in the future that I'm going to have a new outlook, a new way of being a new way of acting, a new way of living. But in reality, it is just as you describe, it is a moment by moment thing as new as you are, as you are dealing with an experience, a new experience or an experience, a recurring experience you might have trouble with that, to stop and recognize it and to deal with it differently. That's where the change takes place. And that's where that's, is that mindfulness as you would describe it or understand it? Yeah. Yeah. All too often people think of mindfulness as meditation and, you know, I have nothing against meditation. It's wonderful, but mindfulness is not just what happens when you meditate. Mindfulness is the ability to be very present in the moment. And being very present in the moment is not some kind of abstract mystical notion that, oh, you, you're in some kind of a outside world transcendent. It means you're able to actually pay attention to what's happening, including very painful, very difficult things, and have the bandwidth 
to actually be able to shift a little bit as needed. That is so valuable. That 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 is that's a real valuable tool to to learn how to how to do that and to be able to recognize. I mean, it's I that would take. I mean, I, I it's not like I'm totally um, unaware of this concept, but I still don't think I'm as good at practicing it as I would like to be. I think about many situations where I know there's something that's not right, but I kind of just disregard it and push on instead of really trying to understand what's going on right now. And if you could do that, and I, I know it just takes a lot of training, and but if you could do that, you can shift your perspective and, and, what, and what decision you make afterwards, I guess, that you're going to do. Yes. Uh, however, I do want to say that um, I don't think any human being will ever be able to be totally. <laughs> Thank totally, you. <laughs> so, so the beginning of wisdom yeah. is actually to do what you describe, which is to say, you know what, there are moments where I'm aware that something is not right and I can change it. And there are moments where I am aware that something's not right and I know that I cannot change it in the moment. And I can't keep that as, you know what, there's nothing wrong with me for that. But now uh, it gives me an edge. It gives me something that gives me curiosity to understand this better, you know, including understanding the, the urge to avoid it and to avoid the change because it's totally human. It's normal. These are, these are the way we're built, you know. And if we go beyond demystifying the process of change, it's also accepting the limitations of being a human being and and making peace with it. I'm so glad you said that. You know, um, I have seen people fall into this trap before, myself included, where we where where we get this feeling that because we haven't handled something completely appropriately that there's some that we have some we're somehow deficient in our program you know we're 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 somehow not doing something right you know and maybe that's and maybe that's the case but it's not that productive to beat ourselves up if we're if we're if we if we think that in fact what you just said it's like just being aware that maybe we didn't handle something so well yeah yeah i think um I think when we beat ourselves up, which again is a totally human tendency and we all do, uh, what's happening is it takes a lot of the bandwidth and essentially prevents us from facing what needs to be faced. Um, Because then a lot of the energy is spent about, I wish I had, I should have, what's wrong with me for not doing it. And, you know, essentially the resources that we have, the mind resources, the body resources are all taken there instead of, hmm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you um, um, work with people who are interested in that process of getting honest with yourself through step four? Um, What kind of things are you looking at there? I know that in the original language of the steps, we're talking about um, character defects, unfortunately. Um, But we don't really talk about that here. So no, 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 I, I, I really, um, I, um, I have a very strong negative reaction to the notion of character defects. And um, it's so redolent of um, kind of a a religious approach to life and sins, okay? So many people would say the 12 steps, even the original 12 steps are not talking in terms of sin. But when you talk in terms of character defects is you're flawed, you know? And that's like, you know, basically human beings are flawed and redemption comes through God and you get redemption when you atone. 
you know and and so again i have nothing against humility humility is wonderful but there's a tendency to turn it into putting yourself down which actually would be okay if it worked but it's an obstacle to growth. Right. It would be good if it worked. <laughs> it doesn't. No. It doesn't. No. No. So, so the, the, the way I have reworked it is that uh, examining my life with honesty, searching with, for patterns, and, and the concept is patterns, to say it's not about what did I do wrong this time, bad guy, bad guy, don't do it. But you know what? Uh, I want to understand better how I seem to react in certain ways in circumstances. So patterns and patterns are not defects of character, but patterns, the default mode in which you react, I react to people and situations. So we turn it into behavior and behavior patterns. And already from that perspective, have a sense that what we're looking for is better understanding the logic that makes us act how we act. And this is what really gets us into step six and seven, which are actually uh, my two favorite steps. Uh, the two steps I find the most interesting. And uh, you describe them here as looking at, uh, so anyway, what we've been dealing with in steps four and five is are noticing these patterns, which were coping mechanisms is how we learn to cope with our life. And so step six is about changing how we are learning different ways of coping. I wonder if you could go into that a little bit. So, so it's really, really making the link, which is so obvious, blindingly obvious once you have made it and blindingly obvious, maybe when you look at other people, but we are amazingly able to be blind to our own patterns. And so it's understanding, you know what, when I do this, it's a coping mechanism. What does a coping mechanism mean? It is something that helps me deal with something that feels unbearable. And what feels truly unbearable is the fear, the vulnerability, the sense of threat. And uh, if you know something about how we are, if you think about evolution, you know, evolution tells us that we evolve to be very sensitive to fear because it's what allows us to be here. The ancestors of ours who were not sensitive to fear basically didn't get much offspring because it was much better, you know, way back when, uh, you know, if you were too afraid, you would at least survive. If you were too cocky, chances are you would be mowed down. The lion would you know? eat you. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And so we have a very, very strong evolutionarily built sense of reacting to threat. And uh, so when we perceive situations to be a threat, then we're scared. And the kind of scare that it is, is in, in, uh, in real life, in civilized life, we cannot apply the evolutionary mechanisms that we came equipped with. Uh, evolutionarily, we use fight or flight, you know, but in a situation, say in an office, if your boss is really annoying you, uh, you're not going to punch him or her. And you cannot, when the boss is annoying you, suddenly leave the office and go away uh, so fight or flight are coping mechanism, or useful coping mechanism in nature that we cannot use. It's kind of interesting. So it's like human beings really haven't evolved 
um, to uh, quickly enough to keep up with the way that society and technology has evolved. So we we're like we're still like we still have the same brains, I guess, that we had when we were hunter hunter gatherers, you know, a hundred thousand years ago. And, but now we're living in a different world and, and our brains didn't evolve for the type of environment we're living in. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, the, what is absolutely amazing is that if you take the hunter gatherer of way back when, uh, and if you were for some reason able to unfreeze them, you know, they'd say they were frozen someplace and bring them in our society and raise them, they would be perfectly okay because they have exactly the same equipment we have. So it might seem amazing to think it that way, but what it also means is we don't have the, basically the equipment that it takes to act in the world that we have created. Wow, that's amazing. I wonder if we'll ever catch up. Probably not because the, the, <laughs> the world will continue to change and evolve. Yeah, we, we unfortunately were able to change the word much faster than we can just catch up with. Yeah. Well, I like that. I like that idea of thinking about thinking about this whole way of um, of of coping mechanisms. And it makes total sense to me looking back at at my own personal recovery and my journey through the steps is, you know, my behavior before I before I wanted to change it was how I was coping with my life at the time. And I was just doing the best I could. And in some ways it was working, but it got to the point where it wasn't working anymore and I needed to learn, learn new ways. And I'm still, and that's going to be a lifelong process, probably for all people. That's a lifelong process as our lives change and our circumstances change, you know, as we get older and so forth. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and the, um, the amend steps, I, I, I have, a. Uh, I have some questions about these. I, I have some misgivings. I don't know. I, here's my thing about these steps. I think that it's important that we go back and, and mend our relationships, but boy, I have seen some real problems with people um, inappropriately um, trying to contact someone that perhaps the best thing would be to leave that person alone. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts about, steps eight and nine and how, how should people really go about about that yeah yeah so i think steps eight and nine are the tip of the iceberg and if you only focus on the tip of the iceberg you don't do uh, what is really crucial to create change when all the focus on uh, steps five you know through nine is about uh, what the way you might have hurt other people and, and how you, you deal with that. You know, of course, it's very important. But if you only deal with that, you're really not dealing with what is it that made you do that. And if you don't deal with understanding what is it that made you do that, and you don't find ways to actually change it, all the excuses in the world are going to be meaningless. Because you, excuse, you, you say you're sorry, you apologize profusely, but essentially put back in the same situation, you would do the same thing. So in the traditional 12 steps, of course, people change their behavior, but it's almost by accident. Um, and I think the way I, I wrote the steps is about finding a deliberate way to understand the process and to go very slowly, step by step, in order to create a change that is deep and lasting. Yeah, you write it as I explore alternative behaviors and rehearse them and rehearse them in safe settings as step eight. 
And then in step nine, I apply these new mindful behaviors in my everyday life. I sincerely apologize to people I have hurt except when counterproductive. So again, really focusing on the, on and figuring out different ways of behaving and then implementing those new behaviors. And I think to a large extent that a lot of us kind of end up doing that by accident. And I think that, um, my approach to those steps was probably along the lines more of what you wrote than actually having to go and, you know, um, because it was, you know, in my case, it was the people I was closest to that were harmed by my behaviors and I was still in relationships with them. And what I needed to do was change the way that I related to them more, which meant more than kind of revisiting the past and trying to correct anything that had already happened was my experience anyway. So it's beautiful when you say that, and uh, what you're doing is you need to change the way you're relating to them. Uh, Essentially from that place, the apology is totally meaningful because you see how you could do something differently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And those, that's really is powerful stuff. I, you know, when I, when I, when I first introduced this topic, when I was talking to you, what was in my mind surge is, um, one time I was working the phones for our local AA office and I got a call from a young woman who was in tears and she was um, very shooken up and um, and she told me the reason is that she was contacted by an ex who she never wanted to hear from again. And I think that she told me that she even had a restraining order against him. But anyway, he contacted her because he was told that he needed to do that. And she says, do you tell people to do this? Oh, my God. And I said, no, we don't. In fact, we tell them not to do that if it's going to hurt somebody. But again, I think that, you know, this is going to happen. You're going to have somebody who um, isn't thinking. This, I, I, I think... I don't know, Serge, do you think that maybe this is where it's really important to have a coach, a therapist, someone to guide you? So I think in many cases it is useful. Um, uh, When you get a sense of how deep trauma can be, um, I think uh, essentially the, the having humility is to realize that you need help. I also think that a lot of people simply cannot afford a coach or a therapist. And, uh, and so there is a need. And, and for some people, um, uh, it, it doesn't feel right for them to do it. So I want to absolutely encourage people to help each other as much as possible. But yes, of course, having the benefit of somebody who has a broader perspective is great. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's, I think it might be a good idea sometimes when you start involving someone else, when you start involving someone, someone else that maybe you want, you might want to um, talk it over um, with somebody. Um, But anyway, um, I, I do like, I do like your approach, by the way, I do think that your book is pro is the best one I know of about these 12 steps. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of books that talk about the 12 steps in a different way, you know, in a secular way or, um, but yours really goes into a lot of uh, depth. And what's so cool is that they really have evolved over time as your understanding has changed. You've changed the way that you've thought about them or present them even. 
and how how clever that is that you know that um, certain a certain twelve uh, step fellowship that I'm very familiar with hasn't changed a word since 1939. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so absolutely, my sense of it is uh, it's not you know I I, I did the, publish the book at the time where I think okay I'm I'm happy with this and this is a uh, you know solid. But uh, my goal is not to say these are carved in stone. This is actually something that's a beginning of a dialogue. As you read the steps, is it's questioning what it means to you. And then you might very well come up with your own wording that's going to be more meaningful to you. Uh, but it's essentially a way that you confront, you know, the experience of somebody you know, my experience about uh, how to deal with them, how to understand them. And you have this dialogue with your own life experience and your struggle. I like that. I like that, that it's not that don't, don't get too hung up on the words, right. Of the, yeah, but get involved more with what the, the, the action and is that, that you're actually going to be doing there. And you do go into a lot of detail about, you know, how, how you would approach these things. So um, yeah, we, we do kind of get hung up on, on, on the words sometimes. And you, and if, I, if I remember right, you wrote something about, um, there's a real difference between, um, how, how we experience something and then just the way that we describe that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I think that's kind of like what we're talking about right now is that, um, the words that we use to describe an experience is one thing, but the experience itself is something else. And it is going to be, it is going to be unique for each, each person that goes through it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a very important point. And I, I originally, uh, when I was writing this was thinking specifically about the concept of God and, uh, spirituality and that, uh, you know, the way that tends to be expressed is in the, the people who believe in God have essentially appropriated, uh, the experience of connecting with something larger and uh, not being prisoner of your small limited ego. Uh, and so they have made their language synonymous with that experience. And then if you don't buy into their language, uh, it's as if you don't have that experience. And if you're uh, an agnostic or uh, essentially a non-believer, you say, oh, there's something missing. I don't have that. Or, or... But no, it's a human experience. And so what we want to do is find ways to go beyond words to connect with each other's experiences and find the, the, the similarities and the differences so that we now have something to have a grip on, you know, and we can help each other. And speaking of that, helping each other, can you kind of talk a little bit about what you personally do in your practice, what kind of services you offer and what, 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 who you help, what you do, what, what you are, um, can, can you just kind of explain that a little bit? Because I remember so, I, you're, you are a coach, right? But, and you're yeah, a therapist. Yeah, I'm a therapist and a coach. And uh, I, so I, I do, as a, as a therapist and a coach, I deal with people uh, privately one-on-one or, or in groups to, to help them through the process. But I'm also somebody who is passionate about uh, the sense of self-empowerment and peer empowerment. Uh, I have created lots of peer support groups in my life in different ways uh, for as, as individuals or among other therapists or other coaches. And uh, it is really very meaningful for me to 
find ways in which people don't just necessarily depend on an outside help, but can find ways to more effectively help each other. So, for instance, in the book, I have a whole section about how to conduct groups, uh, you know, peer-led groups uh, to develop this. And so, yes, of course, as a, as a therapist, as a coach, I, I, I do believe that there is a tremendous value uh, for people to have some help. And uh, what's been very visible to me is how much I have helped people individually. But again, the reality of life and society is that it's not going to be available to everybody. So it's that, that's why it's so important to develop mechanisms in which people can help themselves. Okay. Now, before I, I thought of another question I wanted to ask you, and so but I'm going to ask you this before we we um, give out your your website information and stuff, because I want people people to find you. But I'm curious about your thoughts on um, the trauma that 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 we will the trauma that we're going through with COVID, and how how is this going to play out? I mean, I think that we're already experiencing it. But is this something that's going to be like a year or two from now that it's that we're going to be seeing the just the psychological effects of this? What do you think? Oh, uh, absolutely. Much, much, much more than that. It's going to continue in lots of ways. But what's really important is to think of it not as the trauma, but to keep in mind that trauma is something that's not uh, an objective thing of, say, uh, there's an action and a specific reaction coming back, but it's filtered through everybody's you know, particular way of filtering it. You and I have different nervous systems, different life experiences, different previous wounds that are unhealed. So, uh, and, and, and life circumstances are going to be very different. Uh, some people, some people's experience of COVID has been, it's actually been on the whole, a very positive experience of holding up in a very nice, comfortable house and, uh, you know, not having to commute and, you know, <laughs> why, what's sure. wrong with that? Right. You know, uh, somebody who's more of an introvert say, well, you know, it's nice. I don't have to force myself to be with other people I'm not comfortable with. And for some people, it's been an absolutely horrendous situation, including uh, being, uh, you know, losing their job, any way of having a livelihood and falling through the halls of the safety net system. So uh, and there's enormous variations there. So, um, you know, what's important is to say, yeah, uh, it is something that for most people hmm, and also that society as a whole is not able to cope with. So the concept of society is a protector. You know, we, we want to believe that essentially there's something powerful about society that prevents us from being affected by things that are too hard. And in lots of ways, there was a breakdown in, uh, in the ability of society to, to protect us. So, uh, yeah, it's going to have lasting effects, but different for everybody. And it's good it's good to think of it in that terms. Yeah, I can, I can see that for sure. And, you know, I, I remember, I remember going into this, I read an, uh, an, uh, an opinion piece in the uh, New York times. I can't remember who wrote it, but he was kind of warning us about how this, this pandemic was going to impact us psychologically, looking back on the experience of the pandemic from 1918, 1919. And he was talking about how that had harmed that generation and that uh, people wouldn't even talk about it. You know, for for so anyway, it's going to be be very interesting to see how that 
turns out. And thank you for giving me your insights. So how can people get in touch with you? Where's your website? So I have a website called proactive12steps.com. So that's pretty simple. If you remember proactive 12 steps, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. And Um, how's your YouTube channel? Are you you on YouTube? uh, Yes, it's actually on the active pause channel uh, that uh, I do a lot of stuff uh, on uh, doing uh, uh, essentially help for finding mindfulness as I describe it. So it's, it's, uh, the 12 steps are part of that. Okay. And then of course this, this little conversation that we've had today will be on YouTube as well. So, uh, that'll be nice. Uh, I love, I've, I love YouTube. There's quite a, quite a nice community of, uh, reco- people in recovery on YouTube. And, uh, it's actually a really good resource for people. I, there's a lot of people that, um, get a lot of information from YouTube and other people get it from other places. So it's just kind of, kind of interesting how people access information. But anyway, thank you. Thank you so much. It was great to see you again. Um, I love the book. I highly recommend it. Uh, Very well written, very intelligent, very thoughtful. Um, You know, we, I, I would discuss these steps from your original book um, at our meeting and people were just blown away because it was, it was really was a different way of looking at them. You've really done a great job with this. So thank you so much for putting this out there for us. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate your appreciation. <laughs> okay. Thank and you. and yes. you're creating this program and uh, sharing all these ideas with the world. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.